I wanted to do these conversations mm -hmm. about Watergate with you because you've spent your life interested in them. I want to go back and reintroduce you. I want to go back and reintroduce why we're doing this. I'm the president of the Nixon Foundation, but I only knew Richard Nixon in San Clemente from 1970 to, uh, 1978 to 1980 when I worked with him in retirement. We moved to New York. Then I came back here to Yorba Linda to oversee the construction of the library as its first director. And I'm back now as the director of the foundation 30 years later. The library is on its fourth director, having gone through me, John Taylor, Tim Naftali, and now Mike Elsey. It's had four directors, but the foundation is separate. We support the library, we support the legacy. Yes. And I named my seven, my magnificent right. seven. Right. And I wonder, do you agree with my list? The conclusion of the Vietnam War with the Paris Peace Accords. Oh, opening the four, to China. The four foreign affairs. I think I think you may have skipped. No, you did. You had the Yom Kippur War. But, he, yes. The four great foreign affairs triumphs. Opening to China, detente with the Soviets, honorable end of the Vietnam War, and reasserting American influence in the Middle East. That, Open and shut. Saving fantastic. Israel. I always compress that into because I heard Prime Minister Netanyahu at his residence in January of 1919 say that Israel will never forget that America yeah. saved Israel's existence. Golda Meir said it too. It happened, by the yeah. way, during the week of the Saturday Night Massacre. The very interesting thing that we will come yeah. back to. Yeah. Domestically, I, I point to I, the but Green Agenda. But I want to add one thing, Please. if I may. It wasn't just saving Israel during the Yom Kippur War. He reasserted American influence with Egypt and with Sadat. And, and Sadat turned from Russian influence to American. So it wasn't just Israel, it was all of the Middle East that Nixon was was uh, working on and successfully. And he partnered with Dr. Kissinger to bring about that ceasefire, which eventually yep. became shuttle diplomacy, which yep. eventually led in yep. 1977, yep. uh, uh, or is it 78, under President Carter to the uh, Camp David Accord. So it's yes. all organic. Oh, and, and it's all Nixon. I mean, Kissinger's the helper, but it's all Nixon. Nixon is the leader. Nixon is the, the, uh, the, the, the president, and Kissinger is his staff man. And then we look at the domestic agenda and we see the, the green agenda, which people mm -hmm. don't generally mm -hmm. know. We know Title IX and all that it meant for young women and girls for 50 years. And the war on cancer, which was really the first initiative that spawned public support for a intervention into disease that is both publicly sponsored and funded. And we now have all sorts of similar efforts around the country, but it began with the war on and, cancer. And, and you know your current chairman, of the Nixon Foundation, Jim Cavanaugh, was my colleague as associate director of the Domestic Council and is the expert on how that came about. Yes, I'm, I do. I'm the law and order guy, but Jim Cavanaugh is the, is the cancer guy. And another day, another broadcast. Now we're going to turn to Watergate. And I want to go back and reset. You really are the leading expert on Watergate in the United States. And I hope that you will write your next column for Fox News about the Amazon ad. Oh. I think you. I, I think you should leave okay. today yes. and get it into print on <laughs> Sunday. True. I think when we're I done with our three right. hours today, you ought to go and go submit right that, that yes. to Fox News. Yes. Let's begin with how you ended up at the White House and where you were educated. Your your undergraduate years, your your where you grew up, your legal education, your White House fellowship. How did you end up there? Sure. Um, I came of age in the mid 1950s in rural Orange County. I'm a 1958 graduate of the Irvine Elementary School when Irvine was six buildings, a wide spot in the road. There wasn't even a stop sign on 101 going to San Diego. Uh, uh, there were 30 kids in my class, uh, Marine kids from El Toro Marine Base and farmers kids uh, uh, from tenant farmers. 
because Myford Irvine was still alive and he wouldn't sell the land. It was all orange groves, all orange groves and a, and a marine base and the corner drugstore was 14 miles away. So, I mean, you middle of nowhere. Uh, uh, I then went to uh, Long Beach Wilson High School, much, much bigger high school, and from there to Whittier College. Uh, it was 45 minutes away, good Quaker school. Nixon had gone there. Nixon, at that point, I started in uh, 1962, uh, uh, he had lost the race for the presidency in 1960 to Jack Kennedy and lost the race for the governorship. Uh, uh, in 1962, so he was the former vice president. He quit politics, eventually moved to New York, uh, uh, and he was Whittier College's most prominent graduate, but because he was the former vice president. And he was very loyal to Whittier. He was very proud of having graduated from Whittier. Uh, uniquely, he was admitted to Harvard, but he couldn't afford to go. He got the uh, Orange County uh, uh, Republican Scholarship. To, uh, uh, to Harvard, but his family couldn't spare him from the, the uh, grocery store, so he, he, he went to Whittier. Uh, in my junior year uh, at college, I, I'm a late bloomer. I, mean, I, I was uh, shy and, and, and uh, retiring and uh, 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 bashful. Uh, I, I uh, got elected student body president. Uh, and I won the Richard Nixon Scholarship, which was presented by the Republican Women's Club of Whittier. The scholarship dean called me up and said, you, you, uh, you, you won the scholarship. Uh, you need to go to this lunch. And I said, I, I didn't apply. And he said, no, no, they let the college pick the recipient. We picked you. Uh, 250 bucks, Jeff. Cash. Go. So I went to the luncheon. And I think to everyone's surprise, Richard Nixon came also from New York. Now. Uh, uh, he was really out because he'd convinced Bob Hope to be the convention, the con convocation speaker at graduation. So ah. he needed to be there. So he yes. was in town anyway. So I sat next to the former vice president. And on this side was this gentleman who was the L.A. County chairman of the Republican Party, Bob Finch, who later comes back as a, a, a secretary, secretary of, of HEW. And, and education uh, and welfare uh, in those uh, days. Uh, yeah, yeah, health, education, and welfare. And then uh, uh, Lieutenant Governor of, of California. I mean, I wasn't in the state politics, but. Uh, and so I talked with former Vice President Nixon. I didn't have time to be nervous. I didn't know he's going to be there. And he dropped out of politics. We talked about Whittier and what Whittier meant to him. And he gave a speech to the women. There was no press or anything. And he talked about how, how much Whittier made this big difference. And then he starts talking about our respective races for student body president. And I didn't talk to him about it. I don't know how he found out. But he said what, what was key was in both of our races, our issue was working with the administration to accomplish something. And what he had done very famously was resolve the dancing issue. The Quakers wouldn't let you dance on campus. And what Nixon worked out was the use of a building one block off campus. Yeah, this is detailed in his memoirs, but I got to get you to law school. So okay, pick up so, the pace, Jack. So uh, uh, I graduate from Whittier in 1966. I go off uh, to Harvard Law School. I aced the LSATs. They were running a program, even if you came from a little known school and you really did well on the LSATs, uh, you got a scholarship. So I went, I went to Harvard. What did you do in the summers that you were at HLS? I was a law clerk for Lytton Industries. Lytton Industries was one of the most prominent uh, conglomerates in America. They had a headquarters 
in downtown uh, Beverly Hills, the former uh, Music Corporation of America headquarters building. Uh, my mother went to church with a guy who turned out to be their general counsel. And her kid had gotten into Harvard, and you know how mothers are. She was talking on, you know, what a, how wonderful her kid was. And the guy said, well, you know, maybe we should employ him. You ought to send him down. And he was the general counsel of Flint Industry. So all three summers. Now, before that, I'd always worked outside. I'd always worked with my hands. The construction jobs paid better. And I worked every single summer from the time I was 11 right through. But during law school, the first summer before I even got to law school, I was a law clerk for Litton Industries. So you graduated from Harvard Law School in 1969. I assume that the convulsions on the undergraduate campus, I arrived there in 1974, five years later they were over, the war was over. Uh, but I assume the convulsions on the undergraduate campus of those years related to Vietnam did not touch uh, Langton Hall where Harvard Law School resides. Well, not quite, not quite. Uh, uh, the kids shut the school down, uh, and that was on the lower campus. They came up and tried to get the law school to do a sympathy strike, sympathy strike. Uh, and they chose Saturday morning to come to the 8 o'clock class, uh, and it was taught by Phil Arita, uh, an expert on antitrust. Sure. A neat guy. And so a couple students were in the, not students, they were interlopers from down below, and they got up at the beginning of class and said, we have to do this, we have to sympathize, we have to uh, uh, go, go on strike here at, at, at the law school, follow me. And these three kids walked out of class. If you're going to get up at 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning to study antitrust law, you're not walking out <laughs> because some kids are upset down the Lord. So it didn't do any good. All right, I, so, so you graduate in 69. I graduate it's, it's with a, honors. With honors. I graduate with honors. Where did you go to work? Uh, uh, well, uh, uh, I had told too many friends that if Nixon won, you know, because we were close, we had lunch together, uh, I was going to go to Washington to help. I had no interest in politics. Uh, I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. And, and, and he won. So there was this program called White House Fellowships where you could apply and you could go down. They're now famous. Study. They were not so famous they then. They were not so famous then. The thing coming out of law school, you remember, you went to law school, was clerkships, working for a judge. That's where the competition was. And I, I applied for this White House Fellowship. Uh, and and, and we, we hit the th three reasons I, I think I emerged. thousand people applied. And they got it down to 15, and here I am. Well, nobody else had a personal scholarship from the President of the United States. Very few people had personal experience with the conglomerate uh, phenomenon. And I, ha I could talk about, you know, Lytton Industries and all these people and everything. And when they did the great upset, uh, uh, I, I was working for this professor, uh, uh, Clark Bice, who's the model for the paper chase. Uh, in fact, I was the model for the kid who gets wiped out in the paper chase. But I went to work for him, and he was chairman of the student faculty committee at the law school to deal with the student upsets. What's so different about this, Jeff Shepard, is that White House fellows today are typically between 35 and 40. Yes. They've accomplished a lot in their life. You're right. Yes. Uh, I went from Michigan Law School to the D.C. Circuit to work for two Nixon judges, Roger Robb and George McKinnon. A very prestigious appointment. But I those indeed. are, that's the way you went. You wouldn't dream of applying for a White nope. House fellowship in 19... Nope. 83 when I graduated or in 2020 when we are talking. You wouldn't dream of that because you're not even eligible. You're not in the right. game. Right. So you're a kid. 
when well, you, you get bet. when you get your White House fellowship, yep. what does your White House fellowship send you to do? Well, they had real trouble with that because I didn't have much to add. Uh, uh, they sent me to the Treasury. I asked for Treasury. They were they were working on the Tax Reform Act of 1969. I'd taken every tax course that the law school offered, and I thought I could help. And it passed before I got there. But nobody else ever asked for Treasury because it was so difficult to fit in. And they, there I was. Some of us might say it's so damn dull, but go ahead. Well, <laughs> economics being the dismal science. Uh, one of the things they did, I had kind of in thirds, uh, I was assigned to Paul Volcker. Paul Volcker at that time was not famous. He was Undersecretary for Monetary Affairs. And uh, uh, he, he the third ranking guy in the whole treasury. And I sat right outside his office. He had three secretaries because he worked all the time. There was always a financial crisis. And then there was Paul's office. I saw every memo coming in, every memo coming out, and I sat in on every meeting. And what months are these, roughly? Uh, this is uh, uh, halfway through uh, 1970. So 1970 until when are you at Treasury? No, I start in uh, 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 September of 1969, and I go through to September of 1970 when I join the White House staff. And that's where I want to go. In September of 1970, the war is still raging. We are not close to the Paris Peace Accord. Absolutely true. The mobilization against the war is convulsing Washington, D.C. Yes. Uh, the country is still divided against itself. Famously, Nixon, uh, Nixon is defying the law that Lincoln laid down, cannot stand. He's trying to bring it back together again. Yes. And where do you land in the Nixon White House in 1970? And who are the major characters who will later emerge as Watergate central figures? And what is your relationship with them in 1970? Okay. Uh, we have a common theme. My life is a series of flukes that happen to work out. Mom goes to church with a general counsel. Uh, Nixon gives me, comes to sh give me this scholarship. When we did the orientation for White House fellowships, the president's counsel spoke, who at that time was John Ehrlichman. Nobody else much cared because they weren't lawyers. But he came from Seattle. That's where I wanted to go uh, to practice law. Uh, and I sat next to him at lunch. And we chit-chatted about Seattle law firms. During the course of the year, John became very important. He was named head of domestic affairs. So he had begun as the White House counsel. Yes, the indeed. The person that you and I would both know now, for example, as Fred Fielding, or in fact, if you've been watching the impeachment of Donald Trump, Pat Cipollone is currently the White House counsel. Yes. There have been many famous White House counsels. John Gray. Ehrlichman. Yes. Uh, yeah, Boyd and Gray. They, they all began as the lawyers, uh, the president's lawyer. And I worked in the White House counsel staff. We sure. had a staff of seven. You did as well. They were small law firms inside the White House with one client, the president of the United States. Not the Department of Justice, nothing to do with the Department of Justice. Well, on a technical legal issue, you could consult the Department of Justice has a thousand lawyers, but you shape the question because the president's questions are always very unique. And it's, it's this clash of law and politics. Or John Ehrlichman is the counsel to the president who then gets another job as yes. chairman of the Domestic Policy Council. Yes. Explain what that is. Contrast it with Henry Kissinger and where is Moynihan? And by the way, where are all those crazy writers, Sapphire Buchanan and Ray Price? <laughs> How much time you got, my friend? We've got time. Good. Uh, when Kissinger uh, uh, t was appointed the head of the National Security Council, uh, uh, Nixon uh, uh, sent him up to uh, meet with Eisenhower at uh, Gettysburg. 
because Nixon said, I want an NSC just like I can, because that's what I got used to as vice president. And what, what they did was have kind of a military precision. Nixon wanted the decisions to be presented on paper. So that it wasn't who touched me last, you know, the president had an idea walking down the hall, why don't we go with that? The, uh, and the National Security Council would produce two documents, a National Security Study Memoranda and National Security Decision Memoranda. Uh, you know, we think there's ultimately going to be a problem in Bangladesh, here's an update. Or, man, we have a crisis going on, the Pakistanis and Indians are about ready to go to war, here's your options. And on national security decision memorandums, highly classified, it was four questions. What's the problem? Why do we have to decide? Nixon was big on not deciding too early. You had to have an action-forcing event. What are my options? And what do people whom I respect think about those options? Now, the challenge, this was on the foreign affairs side, was writing that memo in as objective a way that you didn't give away what the author of the memo thought. It had to be perfectly objective, okay? And the people you were citing with the options, that was, you know, well, this guy thinks this, this guy thinks that, but you couldn't be judgmental in the memo itself. Ehrlichman said on the domestic side, which was a mess, because Nixon had not only hired Pat Moynihan, a very prominent Harvard liberal, but he'd also hired Arthur Burns. And each guy hired about six staff members. So you had the Moynihan team from Harvard, and he had the, the uh, Arthur Burns team, usually from Columbia, and they had what was called the Urban Affairs Council. And this is a slightly romanticized version, but it's very close. Uh, the Urban Affairs Council had 22 meetings, and Nixon attended them all. John Price was secretary. He was one of Moynihan's guys. And they'd sit in the cabinet room, great big long table, and they'd roll cannonballs back and forth, because Nixon sits in the middle, that's his assigned seat in the cabinet room, and they would start debating about, well, the liberals think this, and the conservatives think that, and they never got anywhere. So Ehrlichman would attend on occasion, he said, this is nuts. The president doesn't need to see these discussions, he doesn't have enough time to sit here and listen to this debate droning on and on. Let's reduce it to writing, let's do what Henry does will give Nixon a policy paper on welfare or education or, or Title IX or something, and it's the same four things. What's the issue? Why do I have to decide? What are my options? What do people whom I respect think about those options? But I want to break in here, whether it's Henry Kissinger or whether it's John Ehrlichman from the National Security Council or the Domestic Policy Council, they all went to H.R. Uh, Bob Halderman, who was the chief of staff. Yes, and can and you no. pause and sure. for a moment just explain the Haldeman role because it will come back as we get to Watergate. Absolutely. What his role is vis-a-vis -vis these two councils. Bob Haldeman is chief of staff. Bob Haldeman is probably the ideal model for a chief of staff. He has walk-in privileges. He sits in in every meeting. Uh, he is incredibly loyal, fanatically loyal to his president. I've only met him once. Also, I believe very smart. Very smart and a tough guy. Nixon shied away from personal confrontation. Haldeman relished it. If he thought for one moment that you were not 100% committed to the president's work, he would have you out of there so fast it'd make your head spin. And everybody knew it. 
But the one, and he was the president's fiercest defender in public, but in private. Remember, I transcribed the tapes. He's the one who can tell the president, no, you can't do that. Our audience does not know that you transcribed the tapes. So we're going to give them a little peek ahead in this series. Okay. At a later date in the Watergate defense, Jeff Shepard is, in fact, the individual charged with transcribing the tapes. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, uh, Rose Woods did the rough cut. I did the polishing because right. Fred Bizard said, We've got to know what's on those tapes. And we'll come back. That's we'll come another back name. You're getting ahead of but my I'm, game. Let's but, go back. Haldeman is the chief of staff from day one. You bet. Kissinger is the National Security Council advisor from day one. Ehrlichman evolves into domestic affairs. And by the time you get there, is Ehrlichman the chairman of domestic affairs? Yes, he just, that's why I got hired. Because the reorganization plan number two of 1970 created the domestic council and he got a legally separate budgeted staff just like the NSC. And I was the first or second hire. Curiosity, Dr. Kissinger's office presently occupied by Robert C. O'Brien, the third, the fourth national security advisor for President Trump, is yes. the office everyone sees at the corner of the White House in the front right hand as you're looking at the front of the White House on the West Wing. Where was John Ehrlichman's office when he was uh, the counsel to the president and chief of domestic policy? Directly above the Oval Office. He's on the second floor. He has a suite of offices directly above the Oval Office. And to make and he sure... he stays there. He, never, he doesn't move when he becomes assistant for domestic affairs. Did he relinquish the title counsel to the president? Yes, he did. And he... When? Uh, uh, June. Uh, 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 reorganization plan number two of 1970 takes effect on July 1st. Uh, so he becomes assistant to the president for domestic affairs. They make one of the worst personnel mistakes in, in the history of our nation, and they hire John Dean to replace John Ehrlichman as counsel. Was and, John Dean the counsel when you arrived at the White House, Jeff? Yes, for a month. And He'd been counsel for a month. How soon thereafter did you meet him as a young lawyer who had come to work for Ehrlichman? Well, my uh, uh, assignment was working... Uh, Counsel, can, can I direct the uh, witness to answer the question? Yes. Ehrlichman <laughs> hired me. Uh, I asked to work and report to one of his four direct reports named Bud Krogh. Bud was in charge of the law and order issue. Uh, Bud was principally responsible. I read uh, just the other day under oath, he said, I was primarily responsible for John Dean being Hyder's counsel to replace John Ehrlichman. Uh, uh, but it was a classic bureaucratic maneuver. Ehrlichman didn't want a power base to compete with him. So when he got named head of domestic affairs, he took the entire council staff with him. In the great battle of the cools, and this is hard to explain, domestic policy was a substantive job, like the NSC. Counsel to the president was a, it was a process job. We've got this issue what's the legal aspect so we can plug it into substance. John Dean had nothing to do when he arrived at the White House because the substance had gone with John Ehrlichman. And so when did you, Jeff Shepard, meet John Dean? In the first three, four months. In the White House mess as a matter of social uh, engagement, but not as lawyers. I can't tell you precisely when he came to my attention it, it wasn't in a significant way. I was 
working on substance with the Department of Justice. Just as an example, within the first month of my arrival, I was the substantive lead on taking the president to the Department of Justice to, a, to sign the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970. Now, there's a Secret Service guy, there's an advanced guy, and there's a substance guy. You know, well, we want the president to sit here, we want the crowd to be kept away to be sure it's, it, it, it's secure. But what the president says, there's a speechwriter, but the substance is domestic counsel issue. So John Dean, John Dean did not see the president for the first two years he was on the staff. He's got nothing to do. I, I, I want, again, for the benefit of people who are listening or watching or both of this series so they understand the Nixon White House, it is organized with, if I can say, by September of 1970, some certainty, three power centers. Henry Kissinger and the National Security Council, John Ehrlichman and the Domestic Policy Council, and H.R. Bob Haldeman as the chief of staff. You bet. Let's go back to Bob for just a second, Please. if we could. Bob is all-powerful, but Bob doesn't care. Bob has no political point of view except whatever Nixon wants. So Bob can sit in on National Security Council stuff, but Bob doesn't say, you know, I've always liked Pakistan. My mom, you know, used to shop at a Pakistani market. Bob's got no involvement there. Same thing with domestic affairs. He and John Ehrlichman were uh, roommates or very, very close at UCLA together. Bob didn't really care what the decision was as long as it was the president's decision. John's job was to present the president with an array of options. But Bob wouldn't weigh in and say, you know, UCLA is an important school. We got to get him more money. That's why he, he had absolute power over who the president saw and what the president was told. But it was perfectly straight. Plug and play Morse names for our audience so that they will understand. They've got the big three now. Okay. Haldeman, Kissinger, and Ehrlichman. I need to know where is Colson and what is his job. Chuck Colson was a friend of mine after he'd gone to jail, converted, and become the great evangelist of the sure. late 20th century. Sure. Uh, where are the speechwriters and where exactly does the president fit into the operation of all these different power centers? Let's start with Colson and then move through the rest of the major players. Colson is special counsel to the president. Uh, uh, he's not a part of the uh, council's office. Uh, he's kind of a political guy. And there were political guys around without specific substantive responsibilities. He evolves into being in charge of communications, replacing Herb Klein uh, uh, about a third of the way into the first term. And he's responsible for relationships with uh, public interest groups and special interest groups, holding the hand of the unions, uh, uh, worrying about blue-collar workers, uh, but it's, it's focusing on uh, uh, kind of campaign issues, the campaign uh, to sell the president's ideas, not forming the ideas. He was not involved in that. Uh, but he also, and I'm going to evolve him here because he becomes more prominent uh, when it came up time for re-election. Chuck is uh, kind of out front with some, some very, very aggressive statements. Uh, I would run over my grandmother if I thought I would help elect Richard Nixon. Uh, on the tapes, he gets Nixon on the phone 
and he plays to Nixon's dark side. You know, they're out to get you, they're lying about you, you know, we really got to do this stuff. He ran what was called the 9.15 a.m. attack group, and they'd get some people in, uh, and they would talk about uh, uh, developing a line to go attack a political opponent. We didn't do that on the Domestic Council or the National Security Council. Okay, pause there. We'll come back to Colson. Tell me where are the writers, the fame well, the, uh, writers? Well, uh, the uh, speech writing team <clears throat> was uh, uh, run by David Gergen, who emerges later as a, a very, very interesting spokesperson. Uh, the, 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 and, and there were a couple of presidential uh, uh, specialists, uh, Ray Price and Bill Sapphire, uh, sometimes Jamie Hume would come in. He wasn't a full-time employee, but come in and work on particular things. A young Pat Buchanan. A young Pat Buchanan, but Pat did much more. Pat was the House conservative. Pat had been with Nixon for a long time, and Nixon, Nixon was not conservative. He was more of a pragmatist, but he wanted to know where Pat was on these issues. So Pat, I never thought of Pat as a dedicated speechwriter as much as a... Uh, spokesperson for the conservative point of view. Uh, right, so the what, counterpart was Len Garman. Len Garman uh, uh, was Nixon's law partner from uh, uh, the, the Mudge Rose Law Firm, a liberal Jew, but he was the spokesperson for the liberal point of view. Was he also a special assistant to the president in 1970? Yes, he was there. And did the Urban Affairs Council, which you referenced earlier, disappear? Or it was merged it, into and became a part of the domestic council. Answering to Ehrlichman. Absolutely. Uh, the people from Pat Moynihan's staff, he'd gone over to be ambassador to, to India. Uh, the people from his staff who stayed, who were still around, John Price and Chris DeMuth, really talented bunch of people, they joined the domestic council. Where did the um, Colson operation report to? Substantively, uh, uh, on any domestic issue, it, it had to be cleared through Ehrlichman. Ehrlichman was clearly senior. Procedurally, he reported to Haldeman. Okay, so uh, operating underneath um, John Ehrlichman is Bud Crow. Four guys. Who yeah. else? Um, John Whitaker, uh, who was the environmental side. He'd been secretary of the cabinet. He's older. Um, Ed Morgan. Uh, Ed did... Uh, 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 desegregation and HUD, things like that. Bud did law and order and, uh, and law enforcement, treasury and the Department of Justice. Um, there's a fourth who, who's, uh, oh, Ed Harper. Ed Harper was kind of the budget guy. Uh, and now John's principal deputy was Ken Cole, but, but Ken didn't have substantive responsibility for individual stuff. Uh, uh, that was Harper and uh, at the beginning, Harper and Whitaker and Krogh uh, and Morgan. So if I can, to wrap up our first episode of Known Unknowns, the Watergate truth, at the time that you arrive in the White House, Watergate is not yet an issue. The shadow has not yet fallen over the land. Absolutely. It will. Yeah. How many people total do you see walking around the West Wing or the old executive office building on any given day? We're, not, we're talking about a universe of, what, 100 people? Well, uh, there was a special phone line uh, 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 where the most important people could bypass the secretary, and it was called I.O., and all the other phone lines are four-digit. The in, inner office phone line was three digits. 
And if you got one, you were pretty important. And there were 85 people with IOs. Now, you sure as hell didn't pick it up and call Bob Haldeman. But Bob would call you. There were 85 IOs. 85 IO lines. So Watergate comes out of those 85, or many of those 85 have nothing to do with Watergate. Absolutely nothing to do with Watergate. And so what we'll talk about in episode two is how does the shadow enter into the White House? And we'll begin by looking at the cabinet and John Mitchell. This is the first episode of Known Unknowns with Jeff Shepard on Watergate. I hope you come back for episode two.